0: Good morning. I'm just checking you're still with us. um, The cry of the heart of anybody who's sharing from the Word of God is that you don't hear the speaker, you hear God. The way that works is, uh, yeah, okay, the speaker prays and really seeks God for what he's going to share. But the Holy Spirit... Has to be there in between the mouth of the speaker. Any speaker. And the ear of the listener. And that's, that's my prayer really. That God's spirit would stand between my mouth and your ear. Because the cry of our heart is we want to be more like him. So we need him to touch us with the richness of his word. And to speak to us supernaturally and personally amen well we've all started on the same page let me see if I get this right Okay, those who were here last Sunday will know that we're 11 weeks into a series looking at the lessons we can learn from the life of Moses and uh, since we're 11 weeks in we've passed a few milestones uh, I hope Nope. That works better when it's on. <laughs> we've done the story of the burning bush. We've, uh, we've crossed the Red Sea. And uh, last week, we did the Ten Commandments. And Nigel, I know you're listening. If you want to know what was on that slide, you should have been here, shouldn't you? <laughs> I've discovered that if you're privileged to preach here at Gateway Church, uh, Nigel gives you a preaching rotor suggesting the passages which the speaker uh, might like to consider. So, for example, David uh, Simpkins last week, he was asked to consider Exodus 20, uh, 1-17, to and Deuteronomy 5, 1-21, Um, Nigel has asked us to look at this morning, Exodus 21 to chapter 30, Numbers 30, 1 to 16, Numbers 35, 9 to 36, 13, Deuteronomy 15, 1 to 18, Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 20, Deuteronomy 17, 8 to 20, and finally, Deuteronomy 19, 1 to chapter 25, verse 16. Thanks, Nigel. (laughs) Now, these passages essentially cover the law uh, within which lies the Ten Commandments. And any speaker who has to talk about the law, in my view, really has a job on. Understanding the law is rather like cuddling an elephant. You know it's large and grey. You hear distant trumpeting. But it's very hard to comprehend in its entirety Or to work out precisely what it does. And if the law were a person, it would be carrying a great deal of baggage. (coughs) For example, Christians habitually fail to observe at least one and possibly two of the Ten Commandments. We've rejected the Jewish Sabbath as our Lord's Day, very early in the history of the church. And perhaps more debatably, we violate the commandment against graven images. In our case, we render in in stained glass, in sculpture or jewellery, images of Christ as the divine saviour. Baggage. And in modern times, of course, Jews no longer observe the law relating to ritual sacrifice. Why? Well, the temple's been destroyed, so there isn't a place in which to do them. So you've got real difficulties with the law straight off in that some of it clearly doesn't work. Not just... For the Jews, but for Christians. Okay. Background. Let's just make sure we're all starting from the same place. The Jewish Bible is divided into three parts Uh, the law, or the Torah, the Prophets, and a group of works known as the Writings, which together correspond roughly to the Christian Old Testament. The Torah is also sometimes known as the five books of Moses. Commentators generally reckon that a good working total is 613 or so written laws in the Torah. I have to tell you, while I was preparing this sermon, I walked into the lounge one evening. I turned the television on with a remote, and up came a program called QI, and there was Stephen Fry, whose first words were, and there are, of course, 613 laws. And he was talking about the Torah. So if you have a problem with that total, because I know there's debate, Please take it up with the BBC. (laughs) In Christian terminology, we sometimes refer to the law as the old covenant. And the delivery of the law, and David touched upon this last week, is found in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it comes in the aftermath of years of slavery in Egypt. The Jewish nation had been leaving a very tightly prescribed existence, defined by their slavery, and then by the emergency of their flight from Egypt. So they needed an external source to provide a framework. They needed some points of reference against which to judge their own conduct because they were just unused to taking really quite ordinary decisions for themselves. And of course, on the one opportunity they got when uh, Moses went up. Uh, the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and he didn't come down for a while. Their big decision was, oh well, let's melt all our gold and make the image of a calf and worship it. They clearly needed help in the decision-making process. Now, the law offered uh, to those who were to become the nation of Israel a safe way around the perils of subjective morality, which is a place Where everyone does what seems right to them. And increasingly, that is a place in which we live. Our nation is increasingly like that. And to be honest, it's less about doing what seems right to us and more about doing what we think we can get away with. Uh, There are a few MPs who would doubtless like to discuss that with us. But it gave them absolute rights, it gave them protections, and it gave them obligations. And pious Jews, both presently and in biblical times, saw the law as a special blessing granted to God's chosen people to show them the path to virtue while other people languish in ignorant sin. Now we have to recognise that God has the right to lay down the law. Firstly, he is Lord and he therefore has the authority to make the law. Secondly, God had the right to lay down the law because he had redeemed them by bringing them out of Egypt and breaking their bonds of slavery. And thirdly, God had the right to lay down the law because of the covenant, that old covenant that existed between them. He is God by their consent and they have therefore agreed to follow his law. Now, as Christians, we have to recognize God's rights over us. The principles of authority, redemption, consent, and covenant are unchanged. God did not give the law to the Jewish nation simply to damn them. He did not deliberately set out to condemn generations of his chosen people by giving them the law. In Spurgeon's words, there was sin in the world long before God sent the law. God gave his law that the offence might seem to be an offence. The law makes no one a sinner. In other words, the issue was then and is now that of sin and not the measure of it. And it is and always has been sin that separates man from God. Okay, you're going to have trouble reading that, so you might want to turn to it. Um, it's Luke 10:25 to 38. And the quick-witted of you will have observed that that wasn't on the list. Luke 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. "Teacher," he asked, "What must I do?" To inherit eternal life. What's written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? And he answered. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart. And with all your soul. And with all your strength. And with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied. Do this. And you will live. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he took the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Jesus' speaking uh, indeed signified the end of what they call the intertestamental period, which is a time span of about 400 years from the end of our book of Malachi, at the end of what we would call the Old Testament and the opening of Matthew at the beginning of the New. Now, rabbinic Judaism held then and holds now that the written law found in the references I gave earlier has always been transmitted in parallel with an oral tradition. And to justify this viewpoint, Jews point to the text of the Torah, where many words are left undefined, and some procedures are mentioned without specific explanation or instruction. This, they argue, means that the reader is assumed to be familiar with the details from other, which is to say, spoken and not written sources. This parallel set of material came to be known as the oral law and was the background and basis for a great deal of debate and sometimes squabbling amongst Jews who who follow this tradition. And and it still is today. I was uh, told about, um, uh, you may have heard a guy called Rabbi Lionel Blue. He sometimes does Thought for the Day on Radio 4. And he was was, uh, talking about a debate. You're a Jew, you live in London, it's the Sabbath... And get a broken pipe. And your house is being flooded. And the debate about what you could do. You can't phone a plumber. For that is uh, concluding a contract on the Sabbath. You can't mend it yourself. That's work. Um, So what what do you do? And the final uh, agreement that they came up with was. Well you could travel. But not by car to a place where people of the plumbing skills type may be, and you could declaim loudly, oh, woe is me, I have a broken pipe, and anyone who helps me may potentially be rewarded. That will be okay. Each rabbi and his followers have their own take on the oral law, and therefore the written law. And as he taught, Jesus was considered to be and addressed as a rabbi. So back to the scripture, it's generally assume the expert in the law had his own fixed position on the matter he raised with Jesus and was possibly motivated by a desire to catch Jesus out, a desire to look good or both. So he wades in with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now by word for in his question, he's already revealing a major part of the problem because when he says what must I do, He means, how can I earn? What can anyone do to inherit anything? If you were born into a family or adopted into it, then and only then can you inherit. Inheritance is not a payment for services rendered. And to be blunt, generally requires that someone dies. So essentially, Jesus replies, well, what do you think? And the reply he gets back is, typical lawyer, a summary of Jesus' own words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. And essentially, yes, says Jesus, you've got it. Next we read the lawyer has a follow-up question so he could justify himself. To be justified in biblical language means to be granted the standing of one whom God accepts. And his mindset is that he wanted to justify himself. And his follow up question and who is my neighbor prompts the parable. Now, (laughs) I would expect some comment aimed at the robbers. When my kids were young and there were robbers on telly, they were always referred to as the nasty bad men. Nothing, no. Uh, maybe some comment aimed at the dangerous road. Shouldn't the council do something about it? These Romans are good for nothing. They build the roads, but now look. Okay. You might expect some comment on the victim. Is he a good guy? Is his family waiting for him at home? Does he have legitimate reasons for being on that road? Had he put himself in a place of danger through carelessness? We don't know. But as it unfolds, the parable is an expose of the practice of the law at that time. And therefore an expose of the lawyer who makes his living from it. So first the priest. Many of them lived in Jericho uh, during the first century And they tended to perform their duties on a two-week basis. So they would do two weeks working in the temple and then home to Jericho for however long and then two weeks back. Um, It's not unlike those who, who kind of, I don't know, work in London during the week and come home at the weekend. They were wealthy. And it's safe to assume he was riding home rather than walking. Now, today, for right or for wrong, we make assumptions about someone according to how they speak and dress. What does a young man wearing a hoodie and speaking with a strong Scouse accent trigger in us? How about someone in full office's military uniform beautifully turned out with a cut glass accent? Would we approach these two people in the same way? You're all supposed to be shaking your head at this point. No, we wouldn't. stick Right, good. Whether we realise it or not, we use how people speak and dress as the starting point in our relationship, even when we have to shift our view pretty quickly. And it is a failure on our part if we don't shift our view. Now the same was true in the first century, but it was more complicated. Jewish scholars could speak Hebrew, while the common folk, well, they spoke Aramaic. Along the Phoenician coast, unsurprisingly, perhaps people spoke Phoenician. Around the Sea of Galilee, the language was Syriac. The Greek city spoke Greek, in the South Arabic was spoken, and the language of government business was Latin. Now the victim, the one in need, was unconscious and naked, so all the markers of dress, language and accent were missing. Now under the law as he practised it, our hypothetical priest was beset by dilemma. And the expert in the law would have understood this. If the one in need was dead and the priest approached him, he would make himself ceremonial unclean and would have to arrange a week-long ceremonial purification. And that would probably take a week to arrange, so a fortnight. But until it was done, neither he nor his family nor even his servants could eat from the tithes or even collect them. In other words, it was a two-week, catastrophic failure of income. If he approached the one in need and touched him, and the one in need subsequently died, whoever he was, under the law as the priest would have practised it, he would have been obliged to rend his robes, which in turn conflicted with the laws against the destruction of valuable property. If the one in need was a Jew, especially a law-abiding Jew, under the law as he would have practised it, the priest had a clear obligation to help, and failure to do so was a sin. If, however, the one in need was Egyptian, Greek, Syrian, Phoenician, or even Roman, or I suppose Welsh, under the law, as he would have practiced it, he had no specific legal obligation to help. We've seen in our history, in the modern history of the Western world, how laws can be used or misused as a shelter to avoid doing the right thing. And this parable shows us such practices go back a long, long way. Now preachers often call the priest a rotten so-and-so or or words to that effect because of what we see as his lack of compassion and and that is probably fair but we need also to recognise that under the law as he understood it and practised it he was completely conflicted and for him love doesn't come into it so he takes the safe legal option he passes by So enter the Levite. The Levites served as assistants to the priests in the temple and uh, they were on a, a similar shift arrangement. He probably knew, maybe even served under the priest who was ahead of him on the road and he would have known that the priest set off in front of him. So he knew when he got to the victim that the priest had chosen to pass by. When you think about it, either there'd be no victim or the priest would still be there. Who am I? Must have thought to decide. I know better than a priest. What will everyone think of me if I turn up with this guy? I think I'm getting a bit above myself. Let's face it. And won't the priest be upset and angry and insulted, because what I'm doing is a rebuke to him? Now he had the same legal dilemma as the priest, but here the issue was legal precedent. So taking the priest's conduct as a precedent, he too passes by. Um, many, many years ago, uh, when John Wimber was still uh, with us, and he and his team first started to, to visit the UK, they were a bit surprised, the team of them, when they came back, to observe that when the uh, English people uh, who were there were praying, they did it like this. Can I borrow you, Ruth? So if they were praying for Ruth, they'd do this or maybe that, turn around, or perhaps that, or that, <laughs> uh, okay, thank you, Ruth, uh, and of course the, the, you know, the John Wimber team said, well, um, we can't help noticing, I'm not sure how politely we were about it, mm. we can't help noticing, why, why do you do that, well, that's how it's done, that's how you, you pray for people, well, what gave you that idea, well, when you were here last time, that's what you did. When they were there last time, it was an uncharacteristically hot summer. And all they were trying to do was avoid putting nasty, sweaty palms all over people. (laughs) But it had been taken as a precedent. You see how easily these things happen. Okay, enter the Samaritan stage left. Now, we, many of us who've been in churches a long time understand that Samaritans are reviled outsiders to the Jews. I tried to think of an equivalent in our culture, and frankly, I couldn't, uh, really. Um, but it is he, operating without reference to the law as it was practiced at the time, who shows compassion. And he uses everything that he has oil, wine, bandaging, his riding animal, his time, his energy and his money to care for the one in need. It is he who manifestly does the right thing. And this is a stinging rebuke to the lawyer because it peels off the veneer of pious adherence to the law and shows what's underneath it. Now, I think the next bit's quite funny, but he extracts from the lawyer a response that the lawyer would undoubtedly have found difficult. Note he couldn't bring himself to actually say the word Samaritan. Couldn't do it. <laughs> but cornered, he names the one who had mercy on him. And there's a further sting in the tail, as far as the lawyer is concerned, for Jesus says, Go do likewise. In other words, this is not a dry theological debate. This isn't theory, Mr. Lawyer. You're required to behave differently when you go from here. You have to do something. You must put this lesson into action. And as ever, of course, and I'm sure it's true in your life, Jesus had the last word. Now, Christians would say, We are under grace, not the law. That we are under grace is a fundamental, foundational, unimpeachable truth upon which our relationship with the living God is based. Yes? Yes. A thousand times yes. Now Matthew 7.14 tells us the way to God is narrow, but only discovered by a few It's narrow, of course, because of all the stuff you've got to put down to go through it. But by the grace of God, though none of us deserve it, it's open to everyone. The way to God for all of us is characterized by forgiveness and holiness coexisting together. God's forgiveness cancels out our shameful past and his holiness prepares us for a sinless future. This is wonderful news, isn't it? By the grace of God, the free gift of eternal life has been extended and made available to all of mankind. Even us, even you, and to my eternal astonishment, even me. But we have to remember that while God's gift of eternal life may be free, it isn't cheap. It cost God the death of his only son on a cross and it cost Jesus his life paid on that cross and the cost to those of us that follow the living God is summarized in Mark 8.34 in Jesus' own words in that followers must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow him I must deny myself and take up my cross and follow him So must you. Or as David Pawson put it, he said the entrance fee is nothing. But the annual subscription will cost you everything. Now, this is a church that preaches grace. That knows grace. That individually and corporately understands and experiences grace. That doesn't mean we forget the cost, does it? The history of the church is that when one group got a new understanding of God's character, a new revelation, many joined them and they ended up forming effectively their own denomination. Effectively they were just emphasising their own revelation, but in doing so they created their own rule book, their own law they often started off incredibly well. For Methodists, it was the methodical study of the Bible. For Baptists, it was the rediscovery of adult baptism. Yay! They mostly started well, but their revelation was allowed, with honourable exceptions, and I accept I'm being hard when I say this, their revelation was allowed to fossilise. I remember uh, when I was a youth, just after the Boer War. Thank you for the laugh, some of you. I'm saddened that some of you were nodding. Um, I was at one of these uh, weekend weekend camps. And in those days, I attended a brethren church. And uh, two of the lads who were with us were the sons of one of the leaders of that church. And it got to Sunday afternoon, and out came a football, and we were out playing football. And this leader... Would not allow his two kids, who I have to say were good at football, to play with us. Because it was not allowed to play football on a Sunday. Okay. And here I am <laughs> years later. Okay. And that still sticks with me. How hard that was. And how badly that reflected on God. To this day. We have to just watch it, don't we? Now, I'm going to have a quick survey. I would like to know everybody's church background. Okay? So, by church background, I mean, what is the church you grew up in? And what was the first church you joined? Okay? So, Church of England? Yeah? Okay. Look around, everybody. They're not ashamed. It's okay. (laughs) Uh, 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 Okay. Catholic? Yeah? Okay. Methodist? Yes, okay, Methodist. Brethren. Okay, Pentecostal. Oh, Oh, there we go, so uh, Pentecostal 1. And, and how about um, house church, but excluding New Frontiers? Right, and New Frontiers, house church, first one, yep, okay. And none, in the sense that this is the only church you've attended. Presbyterian. Presbyterian. We have a vote for the Presbyterians here. I have to say, Apostolic. Mormonism. Mormonism. Okay, Church. Apost- Apostolic Church. I have one here that says Q. None of the above, but that, but that's okay. Look, just just look around for a second. I mean, this doesn't have to be one of those embarrassing. Ooh, he's looking at me. Just just please, if you're towards the front, just just turn about. <laughs> you see, today something different is happening because instead of splitting off. We are from all our backgrounds joining together. This is unprecedented in the history of the church in Great Britain. It just hasn't happened before. Okay, we do our own little rule book and we push off into our own corner and we, 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 know, we sit, sit there in our righteousness and uh, look down on everyone. It just isn't happening today. That just is not happening. If we're founded exclusively upon our love for God and increasingly on our love for our neighbour which includes each other of course then we can truly live out and practice the grace God extended to us. Is that so? So then the phrase being under grace and not the law will really have meaning. I apologise to those who I've told this story to before, but it's one of my favourite. That is, believe it or not, the Ford plant at Halewood. It's a long time ago because they are Ford Anglias going down the... uh, Who can remember the Ford Anglia? Oh, I am surprised. Clearly many vintage car enthusiasts amongst the... uh... The story goes that the Duke of Edinburgh was visiting Ford at Halewood and... uh, as in the, the manner of royal visitors, he, he was going down the assembly line. Every so often he'd stop and he'd ask somebody, so uh, tell me, what is it you're doing? You know, I'm not going to try this gas accent, but the answer would come back, well, um, I fit dashboards, so I, I do that and I do that, and then I tighten that and I do that, and then, and, then, and then I go on to the next one. Oh, that, that's very interesting. And he carries on down the line. He says, and what is it that you do? Oh, I fit seats. So I do this and I do that and, then, and, then this, and that's done. And the recline mechanism is, oh, right, okay. And this goes on for quite some time as he goes down the line. And finally he gets to nearly the end of the line. And he says to someone, he says, and what is it you do? And he looks the Duke of Edinburgh up and down, like the man must clearly be a half-wit. He said, well, I build cars, Let's not forget what we're here for. Let's keep our perspective. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. If you meditate on this, a good way is to change the, the emphasis. Okay, and I, I do I do recommend, so you could say, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself." There are so many ways to say this. This is so rich. Um, I once heard it re- referred to as an Oxo cube so much goodness in it that you have to dilute it all the time to understand and see everything just to get to it Uh, I'm going to show my age Um, who remembers Don Francisco yeah okay he had a song uh, and I can't remember if this is the title or, or somewhere in the song love is not a feeling it's an act of the will See, that this scripture, when it says love, isn't talking about sitting there feeling good about. It isn't talking about that at all. We are here to build the kingdom of God as an outworking of our personal relationship and our growing love for the living God, driven by growing knowledge and experience and appreciation of his character. long, long time ago now, many years ago, we lived in our previous house. We had a a great big window at the front. It was a 70s house, a great big window. And in in, in those days, when the timber that they used for window frames, had they just stuck it in the ground, it would have sprouted. You know, it wasn't the best. And you had to paint this window every year or it would rot. And there were already places where it had and we dug it out and filled it, but... uh, And we certainly weren't in a position to replace the window frame. And I remember I was very busy at work. The children were very small. We were, um, we just had a lot on. Uh, I don't want the violins to start in the background, but we were just very busy. You know how it can get sometimes. And at the end of a meeting when we were praying for each other and and what have you, a dear friend uh, still came up and he put his arm around the shoulder and said, Steve, he said, what can I do for you? So I looked him in the eye and said, could you paint my window frame? Uh, (laughs) That isn't what he had in mind at all. Okay, that was just not where he was coming from. But it was my need at that point, and that's what needed to be done. And we should just be careful that we don't... um, yeah, I've realized I'm on thin ice here. That we don't overemphasize, you know, praying for people and laying hands on them against look, turning up and doing something for them, being there for them. Metaphorically speaking, painting their window frame. Because that is the other half of praying for people, isn't it? And we go back to, to what the, the good Samaritan did. He used his resources, didn't he, to express what Jesus was trying to say about love. So the practical outworking of Jesus' closing words from our passage will differ in detail between us. Uh, but the closing words apply to us all now, today. And it's beholden on us to follow them. You know, It's a Nike scripture, just do it. They're a call to individual action go said jesus and do likewise okay. years and years ago uh, i think this was just after the second world war um, i was uh, i was in a in a a team with the navigators i don't know if you've heard of the navigators but i was in a in a navigators team and uh one of the the guys in the in the team took me aside and said Steve he says I have a scripture for you. And I thought, whoopee doo." You know. <laughs> and I was expecting something encouraging, you know, maybe a bit of a psalm or a, you know, that sort of thing. He said, "Here it is." It says, "Be a doer of the word and not a sayer only." <laughs> This is a doer word and not a sayer only. I realise standing here I am putting myself under a great responsibility to be a doer. But we all have responsibility, don't we? Go, said Jesus, and do likewise. Now I'm just going to close in prayer. And uh, I'm going to hand back over to, to Ru because we're going to uh, do some, have a time <coughs> of ministry. Um, and uh, if you want prayer, by all means, come forward. If not, you can go through uh, and have a cup of coffee. Um, so let me just pray uh, very briefly. Help us, Lord, to love you with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind. And help us to love our neighbour as ourselves. Let us be doers of the word and not sayers only. And let us be people who go and do the work of your hands. In Jesus' name, Amen.